symposium entitled Laboratories of Democracy, Administrative Law in the States. My name is Ben Pons. I am the Vice President of Speakers for the Harvard Federalism Society. I suppose I should note, as a footnote, uh, stands for three main principles, that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of powers is central to our Constitution, and that's emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary. Except the law is, and not what it should be. We're really pleased to be doing today's event in partnership with two other institutions, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. I want to thank Mario and Kyle in particular for their uh, work putting this together. And also the, I'm going to try and do this all in one breath, the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. <laughs> our friend Adam White, who's really been kind of the instrumental motivating force on whose coattails we're all riding this afternoon. Um, you know, Ben, uh, I'll just interrupt and say that was great. About 50% of the time it gets introduced as the center for the administrative state. <laughs> I always say affectionately, though, that's, that's probably in Harvard Law School. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I, I did mention uh, in October, we had Adam's co-executive director, Jennifer Mascott, here for our event on major questions, Dr. and I promised then that you would meet Adam soon, and so now you've met Adam. Okay, great. Um, so let me introduce our, our great panel today, um, Judge Thomas Griffith. Uh, retired from the D.C. Circuit and a familiar face to many here from his winter term course will be our moderator. Uh, to his left, my right, is Justice Caleb Stiegel from the Kansas Supreme Court, and then Justice Brian Hagedorn from the Wisconsin Supreme Court on the end, and then to Justice, or excuse me, to Judge Griffith's right, my left, is Justice David Wett, who hails from America's greatest commonwealth, that of Pennsylvania. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. I swear I didn't put these plant these applause lines. Uh, and finally, we have Judge Jeffrey Sutton, the Chief Judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and a state constitutional law enthusiast, uh, to say the least. Uh, and, and many folks in this room are also in his winter term class, perhaps myself included. Not perhaps, myself included. <laughs> so with that, uh, I'm going to turn it over to Judge Griffith, and off we go. Thanks for being here, everyone. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben, and thanks to everyone for coming. Uh, Adam White and uh, Judge Sutton have a talent for forcing us to return to first principles, and they have done so again today with this symposium on administrative law in the states. We start with the most basic principles of the separation of powers, which is the most basic feature of the national government the Constitution created and of the Republican governments the Constitution requires of the states. First, law is created by a legislature accountable to we the people. Second, it's the duty of the executive to take care that law is faithfully executed. But now is where it gets interesting. Who decides the contents of that law? You'll notice a number of times today I use the phrase, who decides. It's a subtle plug for uh, Judge Sutton's book, which is available on Amazon. There is the <laughs> Where it gets interesting is who decides the contents of the law? That's the rub. In carrying out its faithful execution of the law, the executive must interpret the legislature's command. That's unavoidable. And when it does, what role does the judiciary play in reviewing that interpretation? At the federal level, there are few, if any, more consequential questions to be answered. Answering that question, determining the role of the judiciary vis-a-vis -vis the executive in interpreting the legislative command, 
determining who decides calls for a deep understanding of the purposes of the constitutional structure. And as Justice Scalia reminded us again and again, that structure, which separates legislative, executive, and judicial functions, is not only the great innovation and the hallmark of the Constitution, it is also the greatest guarantor of the liberties the Constitution protects. We are convened today to see how this question of who decides the content of the law is playing out in some of the states. As Judge Sutton reminds us again and again, what is happening in the states is vital not only because they are laboratories from which the national government can learn, but they are the governments that have the most pervasive influence on we the people. As we shall see, some states have different approaches to the separation of powers that have been taken at the federal level owing to their differing constitutional structures. Some have statutes that spell out the role of the judiciary in administrative matters in a more direct fashion than, does acts, than do acts of Congress. Some states have developed a body of case law under the rubric of the separation of powers that emphasize different points than, that, than those that have occupied the attention of the federal courts. It is the hope of this panel that our exploration of the differing approaches to the role of the judiciary and administrative law that is going on in the states will help us be better equipped to answer the all-important question the Constitution takes most seriously. Who decides? So we have decided randomly, somewhat randomly, <laughs> we decided to hear from the justices in alphabetical order of the states in which they serve. <laughs> that, does that work? So I, I believe that means that we are going to uh, start on my far left with uh, Judge Stiegel from Kansas. Yes, right here. Not oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> to your near left. To near left, okay. I was going to say you were about to elevate Wisconsin in the alphabet. Sorry. <laughs> uh, greetings. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I've uh, really enjoyed my brief time here already. Uh, when Adam invited me to participate in this event, Kansas, as many of our states, was in the throes, of course, of a heated electoral cycle. And we had several constitutional amendments placed on our ballot by our state legislature, and one of them uh, was directly related to the subject of administrative law. So it was a happy coincidence that when Adam's invitation came in, I started receiving at my house multiple glossy mailers with very large, scary words on them. That said, unelected bureaucrats make whatever regulations they want. <laughs> and in order to stop this, uh, the uh, publicist of this glossy mailer told me that I needed to vote yes on a proposed constitutional amendment because that was the only way I could, quote, give every Kansan a voice in state government. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, this particular amendment uh, was intended to restrict uh, the administrative state in Kansas. Uh, I think that it's fair to say that the folks who worked to get this amendment on our ballot were mostly upset with the administrative actions of uh, our governor, Governor Laura Kelly, uh, that she took during the COVID pandemic. I think that was probably the motivating factor to once again try to push back against these unelected bureaucrats making whatever regulations they want. The amendment would have given a legislative veto over executive branch regulations. 
It failed by a few thousand votes in Kansas, which I think just proves that the issue is alive and well across the country in our states. Uh, I, like, I wanted to start with that and highlight that because it does really encapsulate uh, in a nice pithy way this crucial question of administrative law, right? Who decides? The, the mailer also frames the question for us in what I think has been the most common for political framing, which is it's either the good American citizens um, uh, functioning in a self-democratic self, uh, way, making the laws through their elected representatives, or it's the evil bureaucrats, right? And that's obviously one perspective um, that, uh, that this question gets approached with. Uh, to put it in more scholarly terms, uh, one recent uh, uh, article described administra the administrative state as a, quote, extra legal regime because it has the capacity to, again, quote, evade not only the law, but also its institutions, processes, and rights. The central evasion is an end run around acts of the legislature and judgments of the courts by substituting executive edicts. So that's the uh, criticism, right, of the executive, uh, or excuse me, of the administrative state. And the reason why, uh, at least on my court, and I trust on many courts around the country, we get uh, these cases that ask courts to draw the right lines, to say really, who gets to decide in these disputes between branches of government and public officials. It's complicated, of course, because judges themselves, we are also public officials serving in one branch of government, and oftentimes we may be accused of uh, uh, treading on the powers of the other branches. Um, in my short comments at the outset here, I thought uh, to talk about Kansas and what has happened in Kansas, I would focus on one area of administrative law that I think does not actually get much attention uh, in the broader discussion. I think we're going to talk some about deference here. We'll probably talk about non-delegation and so on. And Kansas certainly has had its uh, uh, ha has its rules with regard to those things. But we have had some interesting cases recently in the arena of prosecutorial discretion. And I don't think this gets um, folded into the question of administrative law very often. But I actually believe that prosecutors are some of the most important administrative uh, officials, executive branch officials, officials that execute administrative law in our society. Uh, and the criminal statutes are often written in very broad ways, which allows uh, prosecutors to exercise tremendous discretion in how they apply those statutes. So the question is, is this uh, an unconstitutional delegation or is there, is there ever a way for a legislature to unconstitutionally delegate its power to define crimes to the executive branch? And we've had two interesting cases in Kansas recently um, that have sort of put that issue front and center for us. I'll just briefly recite the facts because, uh, because I thought they were fascinating when the cases came to us. In one, uh, a couple uh, guys out in the country were having fun, drinking beers, playing around with their guns, and decided to uh, put some gunpowder in their empty Bud Light bottles or, or cans and blow them up. And they were doing this and having a good time until the sheriff showed up, arrested them, and they were charged under Kansas's Terrorism Act for possessing explosives. 
Um, and sure enough, if you look at the statute in Kansas, uh, for the definitional section, it essentially describes possessing a, a explosive as possessing any combination of chemicals, which when placed in a container can generate a gas and cause a mechanical failure. This is a very broad definition. So uh, the question was, who gets to decide what particular facts qualify for possessing a, a, a terroristic explosive device. Um, I took the approach in a, in a concurring opinion of discussing a very popular grade school science experiment uh, where you take a roll of Mentos and you put them in a Diet Coke can. I don't know if you've seen this before. It's a great thing to do. It teaches kids lots about science, I presume. But what you get when you do this is an explosion of Diet Coke, right? And actually, what happens in that science experiment fits the statute to a T. Um, it generates a gas which is designed to cause a mechanical failure. Um, so is that a violation of the Kansas Anti-Terrorism um, It may seem like a silly question, but these are questions that prosecutors are faced with all the time, and, and I think it's fair to ask, did the legislature really mean to give prosecutors and maybe juries um, that much power to define crimes in Kansas? The second case I'll discuss just briefly um, had to do with our uh, felon in a possession of a weapon statute, which uh, defines a weapon, at least in one subsection, as a dirk, switchblade, straight edge razor, or any other dangerous cutting instrument of like character. So if you imagine, just think of your toiletry bag. I'm thinking of that because I just flew. But you know, in your uh, in your rooms or in your bathrooms or whatever, there's a lot of dangerous cutting instruments, right? Are they all weapons that were intended to be criminalized by the Kansas legislature? In this particular case, a, a, a felon had, who was on probation uh, got a job as a machinist and was asked to carry a multi-tool, which is one of those very small, you know, you, it's like a folding pocket knife, essentially. And he went to his probation officer and said, hey, uh, is this a weapon? Am I allowed to possess this? And the probation officer actually said, no, the legislature didn't mean to, to criminalize this. Of course you can have this for your job. Lo and behold, he was arrested, found with the multi-tool, and charged by a prosecutor with being a felon in possession of a weapon. The argument was actually raised to the Kansas Supreme Court that this was an unconstitutional delegation of power by the legislature to prosecutors. And uh, a majority of the court uh, accepted that argument and found that yes, this statute is an unconstitutional delegation of legislative power to the executive branch because it's so vague that it essentially allows prosecutors to as on an ad hoc basis decide what is an, what is a crime and deciding what is a crime is the role of the legislature. So those are two interesting cases, which I don't think oftentimes get thought of as being part of the basket of administrative law. Um, and I'll conclude with that. Thank you. Thank you, Judge Griffith. I, it's great to be here. I, I, uh, I commend uh, Professor White and the organizers for, for uh, putting this together. And I, I have to say, I think, I think back to my time in law school and um, 
my some of my most delightful experiences were those dinner meetings of the Federalist Society, um, and I, I, I guess I was the uh, token liberal there, um, and had such so much fun, and um, uh, the spirit of debate at those events was uh, tremendous. So I am um, delighted to be here and to participate. I'm a lot less liberal now than I was then, uh, but I, I still enjoy the discussions and the debate. And I have to also say that it's really exciting, I don't know about my fellow panelists, but to look out and see this many students come to an, a session on administrative law, because when I was in law school, uh, I found administrative law really boring, and I, I didn't get it. Uh, I, 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 it, it, my, my, um, my eyes glazed over when I did the reading, and I think part of the reason I wasn't that enchanted with the subject was the person who was teaching the, the um, session uh, or the section that I was in uh, had, had this undue fascination with NHTSA, the National Highway uh, Safety uh, Transit Safety Administration. Everything was about NHTSA, NHTSA this, NHTSA that, and it just. Uh, um, so I think if you can um, expand beyond NHTSA, movement, <laughs> uh, you can you can begin to see some of the interesting parameters of administrative law. And um, Justice Stegall has already gone, and, and Judge Griffith. And wait a second, you clerked on the DC Circuit. And I clerked on yeah, the DC Circuit. <laughs> Um, so it it, um, it started to get it started to, it started to get a little more interesting. Although I would say that the, probably one of the least interesting aspects of my clerkship was that, uh, that um, I had a one-year installment of the of the ongoing. Maybe it's still going on. The um, the the rate-making litigation from WMATA, Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, is probably still going on. I don't think it is. It just went on. And on. <laughs> I didn't think it was possible yeah. to do worse than NHTSA, but you just poop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think generations of DC Circuit uh, judges um, were, you know, the um, the uh, judge I clerked for was superannuated, as was his coll surviving colleague on the WMATA panel, Judge Spotswood Robinson. And um, I think the third judge on the panel had, had d died during the pendency of this latest iteration. And, and I think the litigation definitely outlived Judge McKinnon, who I clerked for, and Judge Robinson. But uh, I'm glad to know it concluded before your tenure. So. there. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and also, um, the other thing is that as Judge Sutton points out in his wonderful article for this symposium and the books, the wonderful books he's written, um, going back to uh, that famous son of Harvard, Louis Brandeis, uh, we, we know the states are the laboratories of democracy, so it's great that the Boyd Center is putting on this panel to focus on what's going on in the states because we are... Um, we read what the federal courts are doing, but occasionally they read what we're doing, and, and uh, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of cross-fertilization of ideas and jurisprudence uh, across those sovereigns, so, uh, and, and as Judge Sutton's also written about, you know, some of, some of the um, doctrinal underpinnings in this area uh, actually um, trace back to the state jurisprudence um, rather than vice versa. Uh, you know, as one example, uh, Pennsylvania, where I live, uh, our constitution is an ancestor, not the descendant of the United States Constitution. You may not know that Pennsylvania's first constitution was adopted in 1776. Think about that. 
the framers of Pennsylvania's Constitution were working in the same Independence Hall, that same um, musty, smelly, hot, um, um, you know, windows sealed um, set of rooms there, no air conditioning, um, banging out the Pennsylvania Constitution, Benjamin Franklin et al. And, and you know, years, more than a decade before the, the United States Constitution. So a lot of these, um, certainly uh, Pennsylvania's framers were not debating non-delegation as such, but certainly there was a lot of debate about separation of powers and the, the various principles and structures that, that bring us here today. So anyways, uh, in, in two of the, what, I, what I've developed in my, in my short essay for this panel, uh, and I won't go into detail on it right now, is that in just, in just about six years, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court struck down on non-delegation grounds uh, two enactments, whereas in the, in the entire uh, time period since our New Deal, SCOTUS has only struck down to Schechter uh, Poultry and Panama Refining that a lot of you have you know, read about. Um, Schechter Poultry was, you know, the one with Cardozo's famous concurrence about this is delegation running riot. And um, the, those two, of course, were still in the, you know, era of the Four Horsemen uh, and, and, and before the switch in time that saved nine. And I encourage you Harvard students to read Professor Feldman's book, Scorpions in a Bottle, um, to learn about, uh, about that era. In any event, the two that we struck down in, in just a six-year period, um, one was a Philadelphia School Reform Commission case, basically Pennsylvania law, some of which is now defunct, but uh, set up a distress mechanism so the Secretary of Education could, upon the happening of certain triggers, budgetary and otherwise, um, declare a district in distress, and the Philly School District was in great distress, uh, over a billion dollar shortfall, and that's 2001 when you know billion dollars was a billion dollars and, uh, and, um, and so gave these vast powers to the school reform commission and um, displacing the elected school board right and the appointees to this commission could then wield enormous discretionary power and essentially uh, what they did without having to um, reach uh, any discernible criteria, engage in any kind of uh, procedural safeguards and what have you, um, simply suspend, um, suspend certain provisions and, and suspend uh, uh, actual statutory um, uh, sections of our school code. So we struck that down. There was no intelligible principle. Um, th there was uh, there was no procedural safeguard whatsoever. Um, just a year later, in a case called Prots, uh, I wrote the majority opinion in this case and and had a lot of fun with it. Um, this case. It's just unbelievable. So the, the, the Pennsylvania General Assembly had said that, and this is workers' comp, um, and I know when I say workers' comp, you're like, oh, that's so boring. And believe me, I feel your pain, but uh, the, in, the, in the workers' comp statute, the General Assembly of Pennsylvania had said uh, that the 
the impairment ratings that are going to be used by physicians evaluating injured persons will be according to the latest methods set forth in the American Medical Association guides. Basically, like I'll have what they're having. You know, so so whatever whatever the most recent edition of the AMA guides is, that's the impairment rating. Okay, so it was not only a delegation, but it was like a, it was like a running tab. It was like whatever the AMA wakes up and decides for breakfast today, that's the law. I mean, it's unbelievable delegation, um, and we we whacked that out. That that was a really delegation running riot because again, it wasn't just what the AMA says. It's a private entity. Did whack appear in the opinion? It did not. It did. <laughs> Some, uh, but 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 it wasn't just what the AMA says. It's what the AMA, AMA says, like most recently, like whatever they thought today. So, and, and footnote here, um, and this is an interesting thing, we can talk about it if you want, is does it matter, is it, is it, is it a distinguishing issue whether it's a delegation to a private entity as opposed to a public one? Odd, oddly enough, um, SCOTUS has, has, not since Carter Cole, ever indicated to my knowledge that there's any meaningful distinction. In fact, um, Justice Scalia and Professor Volokh uh, and others have said basically there's no difference. You know, jurisprudentially, an overdelegation is an overdelegation. Um, much less luminous people like myself have um, suggested there is a distinction, but I made that suggestion 36 years ago when I was at that benighted school um, down I-95 where the pizza is better, but <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I continue to, um, we, we, have, we, we stayed away from that particular, we did not need to reach that issue in Prots. Um, but I'm still sort of holding a candle for that idea that there's something a little more problematic uh, when you just hand it over to a private entity. Um, and if, if, if that doesn't bore you to tears, you can look back at volume 96 of the Yale Law Journal for this, this overly wordy note on private prisons. But in any event, um, the bottom line I came out with in looking at this was notwithstanding the coincidence that we've had two uh, non-delegation strike downs in six years and SCOTUS only had two in 90-some years, it, the, the jurisprudence isn't all that different. Um, but just one thing, and then I'll shut up because uh, there's a lot we can talk about in the next go-round here, but uh, I want to highlight something that Judge Sutton reminded me of in, in his piece because I think it's very apropos in this area um, of non-delegation. And that is that, that many of our state legislatures around our country are part-time, poorly staffed, uh, and, and you know, not in session too much. Now, um, some of them are frankly part-time and paid as such. I think like Texas, for example, um, just convenes, uh, you know, really. But then some of us have the best of both worlds. Like in Pennsylvania, they are full-time and they are paid full-time. Um, they're just not really there that much and they're not doing very much. Um, so, uh, you know, 
the the temp and, and, and in fairness, um, they don't. You know, some of you have been to the United States Capitol, and you see all kinds of you know lawyers running around in there. Maybe some of you will be them. They're you know very busy staff people. Many of them are actually lawyers. You know, they have a lot of robust staffing, and the committee staffs themselves are enormous. They're vast. There's the minority staff. You know, there's the majority staff. There's the joint committee staff, and on and on and on. Eager Beavers. Lots of them highly trained young lawyers. Many Harvard law grads, etc. You don't find um, as much uh, capacity um, in the legislative bodies, generally speaking, on the law side. At least I once was on a panel with one of our legislative leaders, and I I asked him. I I wasn't being facetious. I genuinely asked him, "Do do you actually? I know you have lawyers there. Do you actually have somebody assigned to like read our opinions and and actually you know read them and then?" think about whether you should react. Uh, he, he didn't really have an answer. But, um, so uh, the point I wanted to make is this aspect of temptation to over-delegate may be more pronounced in the state legislatures in the sense that like you guys, you guys in the agency, just, just figure it out. We're just going to give you this broad power. Uh, we can't, we just don't have the capacity to to really drill down anymore, just do your best. And then then they may end up regretting that over-delegation leading to initiatives like Justice Stiegel talked about to try to rein it back via a constitutional amendment. So anyway, a little more interesting than NHTSA, I hope. <laughs> Uh, well, hi, it's wonderful to be with all of you today. Um, if um, my face is flush and my, my words don't fit together, it's because 19 hours ago I was at Lambeau Field with my uh, son, but we won't talk about the game. Um, so, uh, Wisconsin, you know, is, is really at, um, if you follow national politics, which I assume many of you do, we, we seem to be at the center of all kinds of fights, um, and therefore our court is at the center of all kinds of fights, and so is our legislature. I'm, what I'm going to do uh, here is maybe cover a few more things at a little bit higher level um, about some of the things that have crossed our desks, and um, I think that may be helpful in terms of thinking about it. Um, I'll start with a lot of the changes that we've had in administrative law been occasioned actually because our legislature has been pretty active. Um, from 2011 to 2019, we had a Republican governor, Scott Walker, I was his chief counsel for about five years, working on some of these things, and a Republican legislature, and they passed um, all sorts of, of different uh, reforms, among them uh, requiring, for example, agencies when they um, promulgate rules to rely on specific statutory authorities saying you can promulgate it. If you're issuing a permit, you can only put conditions that are explicitly listed in the law. There was uh, a RAINS Act that was passed. If it is over a certain dollar amount of money, then you can't uh, you know, promulgate rules at all. There were new levers of accountability with uh, the governor and our Department of Administration having to sign off on um, every uh, administrative rule passed that actually used to go through my office, and which is a little interesting because, um, as I'll get to later, we have uh, separately elected members of the executive branch, uh, constitutional officers who are not under the authority of the governor. Um, and then 
uh, we now have a Democratic governor who won in 2018, and after that, uh, our legislature went into a lame duck session and passed a number of laws that are um, still the subject of considerable litigation, uh, uh, taking some powers away from the Attorney General, empowering the legislature to, for example, litigate and um, do all sorts of um, interesting uh, things. Um, uh, but uh, a lot of things have happened in the courts uh, as well, and uh, sometimes they, they do work together. So uh, briefly, let me talk about kind of our experience with um, the issues of deference to administrative agencies. Wisconsin's approach has very little to do with the federal approach. Um, the way we operate um, is nothing like that. You know, it wasn't. Um, so up until a few years ago, the way it worked in Wisconsin is you, you basically looked at how, um, how much of an expert was the agency, and did they have uh, interpretive rules of long standing. If so, then courts, when a case came, uh, were supposed to give what was called great weight deference, which was basically, well, we'll say what you say goes as long as it's reasonable, even if we think another interpretation is more reasonable on the law. Uh, and then uh, if it was sort of within the agency's bailiwick and their expertise, uh, it was given due weight deference, which is basically as long as an interpretation wasn't more reasonable, we'll let that go. And then we had some issues that would review, we review uh, de novo. You'll, you'll notice that none of that has anything, by the way, to do with uh, finding ambiguity. Um, or any of the sorts of things you find in some of the federal jurisprudence. It's simply, does the agency know what they're doing and have they been doing this for a while? If so, then we're gonna, you know, we're gonna let them, uh, their, their interpretation go. Well, a few years ago, um, our court invited the parties in a in kind of a standard agency uh, case to brief the question of whether we should continue to defer to state agencies. Uh, they did so in our court. This was before I was on the court. I've been serving for um, since 2019. Uh, but overturned basically all of that. Um, and so we no longer defer at all. There was a, an interesting split opinion. You had two justices who said we should continue deferring. There's no problem to fix here. We had two justices, including the author of kind of a, a lead opinion after mandate, saying that more or less all that was unconstitutional. Uh, and uh, you, you cannot, as a court, uh, defer to um, the interpretate defer on the interpretation of law to state agencies at all when a case comes before you. Um, you're the court. Your job is to say what the law is. Therefore, you shouldn't defer. Then we had uh, a three three other justices who thought that was a bridge too far and maybe too broad of a statement about what the Constitution requires. And basically said. Um, well, we kind of we kind of made up this deference thing anyway. There's no statute that says we need to defer. We just kind of started doing it, and so now we're going to stop doing it. And that's basically where it ended from a judicial side. Until um, just a few months after we decided that the legislature, in fact, passed a law, and now it's codified. No more deference to uh, state agencies. Uh, one thing I will offer uh, on that that I find interesting because. Um, you know, I've been going to federal society events for a long time, and I was uh, uh, involved. I know this is a common topic of conversation. And I think these are really interesting theoretical questions, but my own experience uh, with several years of that being the way we operate is that it hasn't radically changed much. Uh, and the reason it probably hasn't changed much is because in practice, if courts didn't like what agencies were doing, 
they often just kind of found a way to say that's not a reasonable interpretation and we're not going to let you do that. And so, um, for the most part, um, the only times that, we, that that may come up is if you have an interpretation that's been around for a long time and the court decides it's clearly wrong. And that just doesn't happen all that often. I mean, it, it may happen um, regularly. But the, the benefit is, now when we have cases before us, we're not arguing about how much the agency knows what it's doing. We're, we're arguing about what the text of the law actually says. And I think that's been um, relatively uh, productive. Um, we've also had uh, uh, lots and lots of uh, cases dealing with separation of powers, some issues of, of delegation. Um, I don't have time to go into all of those, but let me just touch on a couple of them, and then I'm going to offer some uh, just big picture thoughts as well. Um, so one of the changes I mentioned is that all administrative rules had to go through the governor's office to get approved. We have a separately elected superintendent of public instruction, separately elected by the people who the Constitution vests supervisory authority over public instruction, which, as a brief aside, we also have a constitutional provision that vests all executive authority in the governor. I'm not sure how that all works out, but um, but that's that the, that's what our Constitution says. And so um, there was uh, a, a litigation over that. And what our court ended up deciding after a, a few fits and starts was that administrative rulemaking is not um, executive power at all. It's all legislative power. Um, and because it's all legislative power, uh, the governor the governor having some veto authority of administrative rules, even over the separately elected officer, didn't abridge that officer's own separate executive authority. Um, and, you know, this is an interesting question to maybe ponder some more, but having worked in the executive branch and now being, you know, in this branch, and obviously having worked with the legislature quite a bit, um, I think it's a really interesting question, what exactly are administrative rules? Um, and I don't think enough attention is given to that question. So think about, you know, a law that says, for example, um, all right, uh, go tax cigarettes, right? Your Department of Revenue, go tax cigarettes. Well, what the executive branch is going to do, or Department of Revenue, they're going to try to figure out what a cigarette is. And believe it or not, there's actually some hard questions about what a cigarette is or what a cigarette's not. Well, we have a, a, a statute that, with regards to administrative rules that requires um, an agency, if they're trying to interpret a term that they're going to apply statewide, they need to promulgate a rule. And so that would probably need to be promulgated via rule. So, question. On the one hand, one could argue, well, um, that's legislative power because there's an element of maybe policy making that's being made when the executive branch makes that decision. So is that the executive branch exercising <coughs> legislative power that the legislative power has the ability to check through the administrative rule process, or is that actually just doing what the executive branch normally does and read statutes and make decisions on hard questions and the executive branch is actually intruding a bit on the executive branch um, by telling the executive branch um, how it can't make the sort of normal day-to-day -day calls that every executive branch agency or official needs to make about what words of a statute mean. I'm not here to tell you what the right answer to that question is, but I think it's an underexplored question when we think about what administrative rules are and how it relates to the administrative state and how it relates to questions um, of non-delegation. Um, 
in the interest of time, um, uh, I'm actually just going to, I want to just offer and a couple more cases I'd talk about, maybe I will going forward, but I want to just offer two more sort of global comments um, about, about these issues. Um, so I'm an originalist, I'm textualist, and that's how I, I, I try to you know, do my judging. Um, some people are originalists because they're for instrumental purposes. They, 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 they want a small government. They think originalism is the best way to get there. Um, that's not me. Um, I, just, I think that's actually the right way to do law is originalism. Um, and so that's what drives me towards it, that we, you know, in terms of the nature of texts. And I, I think you know, one, of the, one of the issues that, that we've had, and I've had in cases before us, is we've got our own constitution with our own constitutional history. Um, and there's these sort of national movements, including, you know, in rooms like this, where many people would love to see, you know, 80% of government done away with, right? <laughs> and you know, if we can't get the legislature, can't get Congress to do it, we can't get president to do it, we can't get a state legislature, well, surely the courts should step in and solve that problem. And, and I understand that impulse, but um, I think an important question to ask is, um, and a central question, is, is that what the Constitution actually says and provides for? Has the, and has the judiciary been invited to step in and draw lines? And if so, in which areas have we been invited to draw lines in? In which areas have we not? Because democracy is really messy. And there's a lot of really, really hard questions that are under-theorized and that are under-explored, um, and for which we don't have text that tells us a whole lot. Wisconsin's Constitution, for example, simply vests executive authority in the governor, legislative authority in the uh, legislative branch, and judicial authority in the judicial branch. Now you tell me how to draw lines in that area. It's really hard to figure out, but that's what I get asked to do when these kind of questions uh, come. And the, the last point um, that I want to make as well is that you know, Justice Scalia said, uh, and whether he's right or wrong maybe is up for debate, but he said the, the rule of law is the law of rules. <laughs> There's not a lot of rules that govern some of these questions. There's not a lot of good theories or things for us to hook into and say, here's how we separate the wheat from the chaff. Here's how we can say when you've crossed the line and given power from one branch to another. And, and maybe that's fine. Maybe we just you know, need to kind of spitball it a little bit and uh, you know, do our best. I mean, you've seen things like the major questions doctrine arise. It seemed to be efforts to say, we don't know how this all fits together, but we think you've crossed a line. And so, um, and this is a big deal. And so we're going to maybe give it a little, a little harder look. A lot of states, including Wisconsin, have a history where um, questions about delegation of authority um, really began to arise during the Progressive Era. And you see courts start to act and start to strike some things down by using some different tools and different analytical frameworks than we have today. Uh, and then in the early part of the uh, 20th century, begin to back off and get pragmatic about it. Um, but I also wonder to what extent um, some of the debates that we've had and some of, the, some of the issues that have come before my court too is an effort to be similarly pragmatic but just more stringent. Um, and whether we actually have some good analytical tools. I, I think it's exciting that you guys are here because I, I, we're, we're at the toddler stage of thinking about this. Um, there's so much good thinking and work to be done, history to be written, and analytical frameworks to be developed that I think are essential and really do help contribute to all of us 
you know, trying to do our jobs. I mean, you know, Wisconsin's constitutional story is different than Kansas and Pennsylvania and the federal constitution, uh, but we do, we, we are all birthed from the same spring in many ways, and so I think there's um, a lot of, lot of important questions to be thought through a lot harder and a lot further, at least for my part, um, I have some concern about the judiciary plowing too far ahead too quickly without thinking of those really hard questions there. Um, lest uh, we step out of our own lane uh, and we, we run into the rule of judges rather than the rule of law in the name of the rule of law. All right. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Adam. Federal Society. It's great to be with my favorite friends in the world, state court judges. I guess I'll call you a territory judge. Uh, you are a federal judge, but it's outside of your territory, so uh, it doesn't get any better than that. Um, well, I'm a little ashamed to admit, uh, David and uh, Justice Weck, that I did not take administrative law. I, I had the same judgment you did and acted on it. Uh, that didn't look like a terrible decision for the first 15 years in my career because, <laughs> hey, the non-delegation doctrine is never enforced in federal court. What's to, what's to know? Why do you need to know that? And Chevron seemed like it had to be a biblical truth. Uh, Justice Stevens wrote it. Justice Scalia was its foremost defenders. How could it be possibly be wrong? So as a judge, you look for ambiguity, call it a day, and work on your golf game. Um, <laughs> the last 10, 15 years have just been an astonishing development in administrative law, and it's it's now, it's, it's a really fun topic. I would most definitely take it today. In fact, I, I'd love to teach it. Um, one of the things that's quite interesting about administrative law, at least to me, is I'm, I'm very interested in comparing what states do to the federal courts, what state constitutions do relative to the federal constitution, and I'm being a little unfair to state court judges. I, my three colleagues here would not do this, but I think it's probably fair to say that in most areas of constitutional law, the instinct of many state court judges historically has been to start with the assumption that whatever the federal doctrine is, is probably what the state doctrine ought to be. Um, that has certainly been true in individual rights. It doesn't prove you can't rebut the presumption. It doesn't prove you can't find something in the state constitution that proves there ought to be a different take. But the federal language, the federal doctrine is so dominant, there has been that tendency. Now, I do think the last decade has shown some change in that area, but what's fascinating to me about state administrative law is everything's flipped. The states don't seem to have any interest in federal um, non-delegation. They don't, so many times, they don't even talk about it in Chevron terms. Um, it's almost strange to see a state court agency deference uh, case invoke Chevron. And so it's just interesting to me why this difference? Why have the states been leaders rather than followers? And why administrative law? And I have just a couple possibilities. Maybe it's something we can talk about. But um, one place to start is that the state constitutions not only imply separation of powers with separating in different articles the executive, a legislative, and judicial power, but almost all of them have the John Adams 1780 Massachusetts Constitution's explicit guarantee of separation of powers, saying that, for example, the executive branch shall not ex exercise the legislative power. That's a it's hard to ignore when you're thinking about Chevron. It's, it's hard to ignore when you're thinking about a delegation problem. It applies, by the way, all the way around the circle. So that 
as a textual matter, um, whether you're originalists or not, you ought, that ought to give you pause, and perhaps that's influencing things. Justice Hagedorn referred to the possibility that you'd have a plural executive, which is the norm in the state, so you have separately elected executive branch officials. Now try to think, how does Chevron work, right? Let's just stick with AG and governor. Almost every state has a separately elected AG and governor. What if they disagree? Who's the Chevron figure? Why, why would it necessarily be the governor over the AG, particularly given all the authority that says the AG is the top legal official in the state? In fact, that problem right there illustrates the very thing they were trying to get at in Chevron. Is it legal or is it policy? If it's policy, you'd say governor. If it's legal, you'd say AG. And the reason we have Chevron, the reason Scalia defended it for so long is you could never know exactly what the problem was. In fact, in the Ohio case that just came out and was editorialized today in the Wall Street Journal, this exact problem happened in the case. Uh, General Yost took one position as to what should go on and was pushed the idea that the state constitution prohibited Chevron at the state level, and the governor defended the agency, no surprise, and took the opposite position. So Chevron's a strange concept. And I would say plural executive affects a little bit the delegation debates. I mean, you could imagine, maybe, maybe it should cut the other way, but you could imagine from an accountability perspective, when there's a delegation to an agency where the head of that agency is separate elected, you might think a little bit differently. Now, just because there is a plural executive doesn't mean there's not a single state in the country where the whole cabinet is filled just with separately elected officials. So it's usually Ohio's typical AG, Secretary of State, Auditor, um, and, so, and then of course the governor. So, but separate election, that would seem to have an impact. How about the fact that 90% of state court judges are elected, 75% of the states have judges, the, the reason the two differences is California has a lot of judges and it has elections. So one of the issues that, or one of the explanations for Chevron is accountability. Well, that suddenly looks a little different if you know, you've got elected judges who are actually making the calls and the people have a resort there. Another way to think about this, this isn't my idea, it's Aaron Sager's idea, the state court judges are quite different from federal judges in this respect. You know, we, we federal judges, or at least you know, stingy people like me, think we shouldn't be doing common law. We just have to stick to the statute, or we have to stick to the original meaning of the Constitution. Boy, does that flip in a state court! They are told to do the common law, and the common law is policy making. No one thinks it's not cost-benefit analysis of what is the best rule for this contract situation, assuming the legislature hasn't codified a rule. But if there's no codified rule, that's what the people are asking these judges to do, to find the best rule. Well, judges that are trained to find the best rule, it's understandable, first of all, how they might think about constitutional interpretation differently, whether separation of powers or individual rights. But you could also see things being a little different when it comes to their authority to decide, well, we're going to tell you what the law is here. This is what we normally do. So I'll make one last point because I want to get to broader questions. It's not just interesting that the states have not followed the federal lead. Is it actually possible, I would never think a federal judge would follow a state, we're too proud for that, but it is possible we federal judges might have something to learn from the state experiences. And you know, one thing that seemed to affect Justice Scalia, formalist and originalist though he was, 
was his concern with non-delegation that it was going to be very difficult to figure out a principle that would tell you when there's just been too much delegation versus you know just enough to be constitutional. And he was he was just very troubled by finding a, a you know principle that would work. Now I will say what does support him on that front is the state courts that use all kinds of language. Some use the federal language. Pennsylvania is a good example, intelligible principle. But they're all over the map with their language. No one's got a Eureka test. So in that sense, I must say Justice Scalia was right. So no one has figured out a test where everyone says, oh yeah, that's easy to predict and see how it's going to work. But even though they're using similar linguistic tests, they're clearly enforcing the non-delegation doctrine way more. I mean, I think it's 16% of the cases at the state level versus 3% at the federal level. So just a lot more. The Pennsylvania example illustrates this. And this goes to Scalia's other concern, that the sky really would fall, that it was really going to create implementation problems. And if the sky would, if that's true, of course, Justice Scalia would never think to look at state court experiences being a product of the D.C. circuit, D.C.-centric, federal-centric world. Um, he would have been able to see that the state courts, the sky did not fall. And it's worked out just fine. Sure, there are some cases where it's a little harder to figure out why they enforce it there and not there, but it didn't really create a problem. And the same thing with not using Chevron, which is a concern, I'd say, of other scholars. Not using Chevron is somehow going to be really difficult to continue to administer all these statutes. That's just not happened. Uh, the states have gotten along just fine. States that have gotten rid of it constitutionally, see Mississippi. States that get rid of it uh, by statute, see Wisconsin. The sky's not falling. Um, it, it actually just forces the legislature to do its job, which maybe is not a terrible incentive to have today. So anyway, great to be here, and on with questions. So, uh, first of all, is any responses or questions that you might have of, of, of each other? We should get some other people involved. Yeah. Get, okay. Get, get them. Okay. We'll turn time over to the students. We have we have a couple folks out here with microphones, right? And so, uh, first question. Best question. Right here, Brandon. Can you? Hello, gentlemen. My name is Brandon Sharp. Um, as Judge Sutton just mentioned, that it seems like the states are leaders on a lot of these issues. But I'm so interested in hearing your thoughts about how you, how persuasive do you, or how do you use federal law? Do you give it Skidmore type deference? Do you? Does it really depend? Obviously, it depends on your 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 state constitution. But like, how do you use federal precedent? I, uh, Justice Siegel, when you're talking about the the deference to um, prosecutors, I was thinking about our deference and Seminole Rock deference, but I don't know if that is uh, applicable in your state. So I'm interested in just hearing how you use it. Yeah, uh, so with respect to um, Chevron, Seminole Rock type deference, Kansas is uh, one of the states that has rejected that completely. Uh, we And this was roughly 12 years ago, our court uh, had followed the traditional sort of 
we essentially the Wisconsin approach of we won't disturb it if we can see our way to saying it was a reasonable interpretation of the statute or regulation. And we went the opposite direction to say no. Uh, it's the role of the judiciary to say what the law is, and we are not going to sort of abdicate that role when it comes to interpreting either statutes or your own regulations. So um, that has been the practice in Kansas for the last 10 years or so. Um, interestingly, when it comes to non-delegation, Kansas is on the opposite end of the spectrum where we have uh, a very lenient non-delegation doctrine. In fact, you might say it's non-existent. The criminal cases I talked about earlier are the only cases that I know of in, at least in our modern history, when our court has found a species of non-delegation, a violation of non-delegation. Um, for the vast majority of cases, we We've never seen a delegation that we really didn't like very much. Um, a cynic might suggest that we are, um, we take a robust approach to protecting the function of the judicial branch to say what the law is. We take a much more nonchalant approach when it comes to policing blending of legislative and executive power. I do think that is a phenomena that might bear some examination because as I said earlier, and I think Justice Hagedorn mentioned this as well, you can never lose sight of the fact that judges are public officials as well, functioning in our tripartite system of government. So we are not sort of neutral, um, you know, overseers, refereeing. We are participants in the game at the same time as we're called upon often to referee, which vastly complexifies the questions. Now, I'm not sure if I, that answers your question, but. But I guess I'm just if I can follow up. Did, did you do you see that as persuasive the the sentence in Milwaukee or our deference or did your state constitutional law kind of refra or refrain you from looking to federal law? My own view would um, not give very much deference. I wouldn't even call it deference to. Um, federal law and interpretation of the federal constitution, unless what we are doing is applying federal law or the federal constitution. But I would take the same view as I think I heard Justice Hagedorn express, which is Kansas is you know one of those 51 imperfect solutions. We have our own history, which is very unique, and our own constitution and our own language, and it's our responsibility to interpret and apply Kansas-specific constitutional or statutory um, rules, and I, uh, with apologies, I, I don't really care what the federal. <laughs> go, go, John. I, I wanted to add on this um, I, that um, that uh, I I'm generally not un unreceptive to. Uh, agency arguments uh, that uh, purport to, uh, you know, command my obedience. I, I basically, my attitude to them, as to any litigant, is convince me, don't command me, right? So the argument from authority, I think, is always um, a sig I, I, I tend to be suspicious of it. I think it's a, it's, it, it's often a hint of, of weakness. You know that, that there's that there's a lack of analytical heft to the argument, and therefore, you know, my refuge is uh, a demand for your obedience, judges. Um, and I mean, I I do think that 
that our is obviously a different question than Chevron, and I think it's fair to say that that uh, you can make a stronger case for our than you can for Chevron. At least the case can be made, right? Because statutory interpretation is what we do, right? So if you're if you're an agency and you're directing me to obey your interpretation of a statute that you didn't write, it, 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 you know, there's a disconnect there. Um, if you are, if you're urging me to, um, to fall into line with your interpretation of a, of a, of a rule, uh, hopefully a rule you didn't just draft in the course of litigation, which SCOTUS is poo-pooed since eight, 1988, rightfully, right? Uh, it could, it, you could see it as a different animal, although I'm skeptical of our, um, as well. I, I just want to point out one other thing that Professor White's colleagues, um, uh, Jennifer Mascott and, um, and um, uh, is it Mr. Neckmanny? I forget his first name. Uh, Eli. Eli. So are they here? Are they here? I, I don't know uh, if they're here, but I don't know them. But they wrote a wonderful review essay in the Wall Street Journal back in August of a new treatise by Professor Merrill of Columbia Law School on Chevron. And they pointed out something, I, a number of things that were interesting. I just wanted to say one thing apropos of this that I thought was very incisive is that um, you may be seeing in the in the in the um, silent distancing by SCOTUS uh, of Chevron that that, that this like a, a desuetude that that basically it's it's going into obsolescence and eventually will be overruled. It, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but that it seemed like an interesting point that if you look at if you look at the SCOTUS decisions, I mean, look at look at West Virginia versus EPA, they're just they're just steering away from invocations of deference, aren't they? Right? Um, you know, a, a Kaiser watered down uh, watered down hour, right? But they're they're basically not even going there. And on my own court, I've um, my. Uh, I've written concurrences and dissents saying, hey, there's this deference body of law, let's like talk about it. And my colleagues also don't seem to want to go there. It's interesting because Professor White's colleagues in that review essay analogized it to the lemon test in the Establishment Clause jurisprudence. Um, and I kind of liked lemon, I'll say that, but, but it's gone now. But, um, <laughs> but, but the point they made, I thought, was an interesting one. It's just like for years, SCOTUS had been dissing lemon by implication. Now they basically just came out and said goodbye, lemon. So that may be what's happening with Chevron. You know, after years and years of just going around it or avoiding it or not going there, it's just basically gone, maybe, or going, gone, going, going, gone. And then eventually it'll be tossed. So I, I don't know if there's a moderator's prerogative that I can ask a question, but I, I want to ask uh, Justice Hagedorn the experience in Wisconsin where the, the state legislature intervened and said no deference to uh, executive branches. Can you tell us a little bit about how that developed? Was that a political dynamic behind that? And, and what, what role, if any, the courts played in that process? 
Uh, sure. Um, well, so the decision that I referenced before where the court, you know, where, where my court decided to stop deferring. That uh, came first. The that, okay. that, that came first. Um, and uh, then... So that was in 20, I think that was in 2018 or early 2018 or maybe late 2017. Um, and then there was an election in 2018 and the political power switched, which is not an insignificant part of the story because uh, our legislature called a, a lame duck session and like I said, made a number of changes. Um, and uh, certainly one of their motivations was um, they did not want the Democratic governor to have the same kind of authority uh, or, or make sure that that authority was kind of cut off. Um, and that applied in a number of different areas. But I, I do think that there's, um, you know, there are some, you know, uh, public interest law firms and others that are doing some thinking in this area that make calls and, and there are people in our legislature who care enough to try to pass something like that into law. So it was part of an actually omnibus series of bills that were passed in a very short period of time with very late night negotiations with nobody really paying attention to them until they happened and the litigation about other issues commenced. But and like I said, it's still going on because like I said, they, they took a bunch of authority away from the governor and the attorney general and did that as well. Yeah, I just find that interesting <laughs> for the obvious point because all the action on Chevron deference the federal stage is going on in the writings in the chambers of Justice Gorsuch and his colleagues, right? That's yes. where the real energy is. And I, I wonder if this is an example of, well, maybe it ought to switch over to the Hill, to Congress. I don't know that that's possible. But, but I, 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 there, there is a bill that's been proposed in Congress to get rid of Chevron. Isn't that right? Yeah, there have been a couple bills like that bouncing around in the House. Um, they usually get forwarded in the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I should add that our, our statute does say giving some measure of due weight to the unique ex expertise of the agency over a subject area, but not on the legal question. So I think when they're making factual findings, um, and uh, I, I, we haven't had a lot that sort of figured that out, but the statute clearly says you can't defer on a question of law. Yeah, suppose they clearly, had done that the other way around, if I could just ask. Suppose, Justice, that suppose that instead of passing that law after your court made its decision, the legislature had done that in advance, would that offend you from a separation of powers perspective at all that they were telling you how to decide? It's something we, it's apropos we were talking about before. Yeah. Well, it's a good question. In, in that case, that was the debate that happened among my colleagues before I was there. There were two justices who I think would have said, you know, too bad, so sad. We're the court, it's still our job to not defer regardless of what you say. I think three of my other colleagues were not there. Um, they're not all still on the court. So, um, uh, I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure what my answer to that question uh, would be, um, to be honest with you. I think there's some hard questions. But, wait, but no, yeah. Is that really what you would think? I mean, if, if the legislature <laughs> says, we don't want you deferring to agency interpretations of law, I don't think, I'm trying to struggle with why a court would be troubled by that. Yeah. Uh, that seems I, strange. I can think, I, I, have, I have colleagues, maybe, one at least that's retired, but a number of, I mean, I can easily see he would say, state court judges. He would say the Constitution of Kansas requires deference? No, saying it's the, none of the legislature's business to tell us how to do our job. 
So the question of deference is a question of judicial, I mean, it's, it's kind of a common law-ish question. It's a really interesting treated, and that's, that's what I, I appreciated your comment earlier that state courts function oftentimes, it may not be explicit, but there is a culture of common law judging and common law rulemaking, even for rules that govern our own processes. How are we going to decide cases? We get to write those rules. That's why it's a funner job than a the, and, and the colleague I'm thinking of, uh, Justice Johnson's his name, um, wrote in 2013, our court um, abandoned deference, agency deference in 2009, and several agencies kept coming to the court and still arguing deference. And Justice Johnson got frustrated at one point, and in 2013 wrote, that we unequivocally declare that the doctrine of agency deference has been abandoned, abrogated, disallowed, disapproved, ousted, overruled, and permanently relegated to the history books where it will never again affect the outcome of an appeal and And then the legislature later came along. And it was after that, no, it was after that that the legislature codified, Yeah, they essentially did what happened in Wisconsin and codified in our, you know, Administrative Appeal Act. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, just to bring that to a conclusion, so the states, a lot of states codify, this is for the students, a lot of states, the legislature will codify rules of interpretation, which is so different from the federal model, including saying things like, you can use legislative history, you can use purpose. And that implicates this question of which ones of those implicate separation of powers. So if this legislature, say, got rid of the rule of lenity, I'm pretty sure most state courts would say, you're outside your lane, that that's a constitutional rule. And I guess that could happen potentially. Like I think I was thinking it would only happen in the direction of a legislature that's insistent on deference. I'm not sure they're allowed. I could see obviously your two colleagues that um, in the Tetra Tech case would have said no way, separation of powers prohibits. But I wasn't thinking the other direction. But maybe maybe that's possible. It's, uh, you know I'm not sure. I'm not sure that there's a really satisfactory answer. Perhaps there is. I guess we could think about it. But you. You have the template across America where um, the model law writers gave them statutory construction acts and the state legislatures picked and chose if they wanted to adopt them, and if so, in what form. So we have ours, of course, and they tell us there, you know, they, they tell us certain things like you can use, you can use, you may use legislative history, for example, um, and you may do this. So there, there is a question of, how far up to the line can they go in directing us um, interpretive methodologies? I guess there's, you know, we'd have to, we'd know it when we saw it, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes they define things. What does the state mean? What does he mean? It's, it can be very technical, but probably some of them implicate separation of powers, I would guess. Yeah. Okay. Yes, sir. Hi, thank you all for being here. My name is Thomas Nielsen. Um, so I have a question with, the, with respect to the non-delegation doctrine. You know, one of the reasons, as I understand, that the federal courts have struggled to or declined to enforce it is because of their inability to fashion meaningful uh, standards uh, to police that sort of issue um, that could be applied in a, an objective way across cases. For those of you whose courts are expressing an interest in a more robust non-delegation doctrine, how are you handling that problem, um, especially given the, maybe the differences between your state governments and, and the federal government? 
take that? Um, well, I don't. I don't. In the two case, in the two cases I mentioned, I, I don't think we developed any breathtaking new methodology. We, um, I mean, obviously we don't have anything besides Shepherd poultry and, and Panama refining to go on, but the. The, the, the basic separation of powers principles um, and the um, intelligible principle rule of procedural safeguards. I, I did mention in my essay that we've gone a little further in articulating the necessity for procedural safeguards than, than SCOTUS has done, but I don't think there's any magic to it. And, and, and um, when it's a blank check, you know, it's a blank check and I think it, it offends, but um, I also think it's um, sloppy lawmaking, and that's why I mentioned a point about the not, not that Congress does good work, they don't, but they, they do have more staffing capacity and more lawyers on board, and, and so when they do actually pass a law, um, you know, which is not often, they, they, they actually have had a few more lawyers' eyes on it, perhaps. Maybe I'm being too charitable. <laughs> I would say, the, uh, as far as dealing with the problem, the only way we're dealing with it right now is essentially arguing with each other about it. Um, uh, in Kansas, uh, I'll just, if you'll allow me just to read this briefly, uh, this has been the rule in Kansas on non-delegation for 150 years now, from an 1871 decision written by, I think it's written by Justice David Brewer, who served on the Kansas Supreme Court in the 1870s and then became one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse on, on SCOTUS. Uh, and this is what we've said, that the legislative power of the state um, is vested in the legislature alone. The legislature cannot delegate any portion of that power. However, it's generally found impracticable for the legislature to exercise the power in detail so the legislature can mark out great outlines and leave all who are to act within the outlines to use their discretion in carrying out the minor regulations. That's the rule in Kansas. I have said numerous times, look, this is Katie bar the door. There, this is anything goes. And thus far, I've not been able to convince a majority of my colleagues. Let, let me ask Judge Sutton, are you aware of other states that have uh, developed a more muscular approach to non-delegation? Yeah, so I, I asked Kristen uh, Hickman this, so she's uh, from Minnesota, a really great scholar in this area. So first of all, you know, I, I'm, I'm gonna change the question a little bit, but for, I think, a good reason. You know, Chevron and delegation, they're really the same thing, right? I mean, non-delegation deals with explicit delegations, and Chevron's about implied delegation. So it's the same, you could argue, same underlying problem. And what Professor Hickman was telling me that she thought were quite well is doing things like this, that maybe uh, you should never have deference in an adjudicative setting. Only deference in a rulemaking setting. That doesn't strike me as a terrible dichotomy. And then she said, because this gets to one of the worst parts of delegation, states will put through their APAs much tighter leashes on rulemaking. So they will say, okay, fine, we can't do it. See Justice Brewer, but you got 60 days and that's it. So you either do it or you don't do it. And as opposed to this world in which agency, new administration goes back, forth. So they give this tight, it's, it's not tight in the sense of scope, it's tight in the sense of time and an immediacy, which strikes me as quite useful. And then they're stuck with it, and then the only way to change it at that point is the legislature. So it, it keeps the legislature in the game. Um, so those are ones I've heard that make a little more sense, but it is, so even Pennsylvania, which is strike, using it more, 
still uses intelligible principle. Um, you know, in, in Wisconsin, we've uh, we, we use some similar language, intelligible principle. Um, you know, subs, some need some substance to it, and then procedural protections are often enough. So we've not had much of a robust um, non-delegation doctrine. Um, there's been more cases that have started to explicitly invoke it, but um, quite frankly, we, we haven't had, at least in my view, any sort of real grappling with um, you know kind of our own constitutional history and what that should look like. There were some attempts uh, during some of the COVID stuff, um, which is you know interesting and challenging. And we had a statute that you know, empowered, for example, um, certain officers to forbid public gatherings um, when there's a communicable disease uh, that comes in. So can you, for, is, that, is that too broad? Is that not too broad? Another part of it said to do what is reasonable and necessary to stop the spread of communicable disease. Is that too broad? Is that not too broad? What does that empower? What does it not empower? These are just really hard questions. So my short answer to that is, uh, I think there's an interest on our court. I know there's an interest on our court in at least taking it more seriously. Um, I don't think we've gotten much of anywhere in terms of figuring out what what that is. And, and you know, some of it goes to this question, people talk about delegation just with, what is legislative power? I mean, what, what is that? Are you just talking about policy? Because <laughs> the executive branch makes some minimal policy decisions all the time. Um, you have to, whether you charge a crime or not is in, in some sense a policy decision. You know, if you have a, you have a, you know, rape statutes, but you might choose not to charge, you know, the 18-year-old who slept with the 16-year-old, you know, girlfriend or something like that. There's certain kinds of decisions that are entrusted to the executive branch or, you know, places where they need to figure out what statutory language means. So I, I at this point, I have not heard a lot, you know, and that's, you know, part of my, part of my pitch is, is that I think there needs to be a lot of good, uh, you know, kind of first principles analysis and uh, some more thinking about what that would look like. Because that is why the courts gave it up 100 years ago. They gave it up because they couldn't figure out what to do about it and partially because um, they more or less acquiesced to the administrative state. Um, so are we going to get rid of the administrative state, which, by the way, might mean getting rid of all administrative rules. Um, sometimes our non-delegation challenges are strengthen the hand of the legislature by making administrative rules more robust, which is interesting to think of that as a response to a non-delegation problem. Um, so there's just a lot of thorny questions that I think need to be worked out. We don't have a good answer. Thank you. Okay, one more question. Yes, right here. Hi, so this goes back to the question Brandon asked earlier, um, and I know major questions doctrine was mentioned briefly up here, and West Virginia was mentioned as well. Um, and I'm just curious how, do, as state justices, what kind of what pulse do you have, and what d discretion do you have to kind of look at the way the wind is blowing in federal um, kind of interpretations and federal deference, and especially with kind of the recent, whether it's a blip or a new doctrine, the major questions doctrine as announced in West Virginia, just how does that impact, um, you think, what states do, how states look at kind of these rapidly rising um, and maybe seen as sudden shifts and departures from previously existing Chevron or other things like that? I think uh, <laughs> Steagle has a ready answer for you. Yeah. yeah I, 
it's a good question, and I and it's very understandable given the lay of the land of the legal landscape in America. But it's it is an important insight to take away from this, at least if I have anything to say about it. <laughs> that from a state perspective, um, especially in a state like Kansas, and this cross this is not a nonpartisan crosses all ideological lines. It's a very strong independent streak, and that that question would just sound like a sort of like a foreign language, essentially. <laughs> The litigants don't argue federal law. It's not brief. No one is looking at it, essentially. Um, so for better or worse, right? And there might be a worse to that as well. But that's the lay of the land in at least one state. Right. I, that that's really fascinating because I, I would I like that, but that's not what we have. Um, I, I we get we get I, I have consistently written, please make arguments based upon the Wisconsin Constitution, and I'm not getting them. I I please please make originalist arguments. I, I really want that. I mean I've said that very directly, and I don't get them. Um, so I, I actually find um, one of my frustrations is. Um, we get a lot of briefing about it look like, hey, did you see what Justice Gorsuch wrote in his concurrence? That was awesome. Why don't you guys do that and call it Wisconsin constitutional law? Um, so I, I, I do think we will get something that will explicitly cite major questions and ask us to do something just like that. Um, I'd be surprised if it doesn't happen next term. But what will you do with it? So, I, I mean, I I think some of the, some of the you know, broader questions uh, uh, are implicated by what's happening in the major questions thing, so maybe they they at least are relevant in that sense. I agree with Justice Steele that what the federal government does is of no moment to us, other than its persuasive value for doing our own analysis. And yeah, I, I agree. I, the the um, again one of the one of the great values of this program, I think, is a reminder to students at an elite law school that. Most of the law in America is state law, as, Judge, as Chief Judge Sutton has repeatedly wrote. Um, but I mean, when you're at Harvard Law School or the Yale Law School, um, you know, it's, it, everything's all federal, all federal, all federal, and, and all, none of you great students apply to work for us. You know, so, but, um, but uh, most. Most most law in our country and most courts and most judges are state anyway. Um, so federal law doesn't bind us um, unless it's SCOTUS law on the U.S. Constitution, right? So other than that, we're not bound, but we can be persuaded. I, I mean, we, you can give me a case from the Virgin Islands or the Mar you know the Mariana Islands or the Sixth Circuit. Certainly, that's on another level. Um, <laughs> but, um, we, th there have been cases in Pennsylvania over the years that have said in 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 administrative law we you know we follow federal precedents we don't write that anymore that's like sloppy language from the past so um, we can be persuaded but we're not but I don't feel I certainly don't feel bound by it there's no reason right why we should be bound by it as a, whether it's a constitutional or any other matter so we're not um, so we and apropos of what Justice Hagenor just said that is so so apropos in the criminal area I know we're not talking about criminal law here as such but um, we have we have a, our own constitution and people fail to recognize that the US Constitution is a floor but not a ceiling so you can you can make a case that your criminal procedural rights are greater, or some other substantive constitutional right for that matter, is greater by virtue of our own charter. I'm sure you know. So, but people just 
they phone it in and they don't make it, and and uh, you know you can have arguably can have an ineffective assistance of counsel, arguably. Um, so anyway, there's there's a totally different world of law out there. Harvard Law students is called state law. <laughs> Check it out. Can I make just yeah, one? Yeah. Let's have one thing. First of all, they're they are applying you guys. I've, I've told them about all you guys. And I've told them it's a better clerkship than working with me for sure. That's not saying much. Um, I'm coming. I'm going to come at your question from a different angle, but. I think one that's relevant to the conversation. So, um, you know, I'm still in my own head working out the major question doctrine, how it works for federal statutes, you know, what exactly is a minor question and when exactly may have a lawyer, I think beginning of the argument say, well, this is just a minor question, so a different <laughs> But if I were to defend the major question doctrine, and I've written opinions that embrace it pretty wholeheartedly, it would be on the line that, okay, fine, get the language, get the dichotomy to the side. What's really driving it is a skepticism of deference to federal agencies with a lot of power. And the part of the major question doctrine that is very sensible given this conversation relates to incentives, and particularly the interest groups. If, if at the federal level, delegations are not monitored, whether implied or explicit, what interest group wouldn't want to go to the federal government to have one agency set the rules for the whole country, particularly in a world where if you go through the states, you've got to deal with the fact that they do enforce the non-delegation doctrine. They don't have agency deference. So talk about incentives for agency, one agency capture. I would call it malpractice not to want to do that. And then, best of all, get a rule that preempts everything else. So when you want to ask yourself what happened over the last several decades, it's the fact that we have a bunch of rational actors facilitated by sometimes irrational federal law or not appreciating the consequences. But when you see the two systems together, it really makes sense that the federal ones should start be saying, wait, do we really want to incentivize this? Particularly once they learn what's going on at the state level. So I think it's a really, I do think they're, they're right. I don't think you'll see too many states applying the major question doctrine, probably because it grows out of federalism, which would not apply to a state. But I think it's really relevant to why this court seems a little skeptical and perhaps why they should be a little skeptical. I think the incentives are very dangerous. Well, with that, we thank you for your questions. Thank you for your participation. And give a final word. A final word. Yeah, just, just a few quick points of thank yous and then two logistical points and we'll get out of here. So uh, first of all, thanks to Adam White for pitching this symposium to us. It was uh, really great here. We're so excited to publish it. Thanks to Ben Pox, who did a lot of legwork pulling this together. And most of all, thanks to our judges and justices for coming all the way out here to be with us today. Um, so thank you all. Uh, two logistical notes. We're going to publish the videos uh, later this week on our website in case any of you, you know, want to write about or you know, have a reference point. Uh, and that articles will be published, including a few, or at least one, from a justice who wasn't able to make it in, in March or so. So thank you all for coming. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. Center.